This is the Senior Living Truth Series podcast, where we have candid conversations about complex issues facing today's mature adults. No sales pitch, only the truth. I'm Dr. Nikki Buckaloo. Welcome to the show. Okay, I've been doing my research on the brain in preparation for this talk today. And let me tell you, I've changed some habits. He's working on it. I've changed some habits based on what I've learned and some of the conversations I've had with our experts today. And I think that uh, there will be some of you today that might be compelled to change some habits. How many of you today are willing, if it makes sense, to change some habits today? Raise your hand. Awesome. Okay. How many of you in the room say, you know what? I've reached whatever ripe old age I am, and by God, I'm going to do it the way I want to from now on. Go ahead and raise your hand. John? Anybody else? One? All right. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. If you hear what you hear today and you say, you know what? I'm not changing, that's your choice, yes? And those of you who want to make changes, we'll make changes, right? Our job here isn't to get you to do anything. It isn't our job to make you do anything. It isn't our job to sell you on anything. Our job is to do what? Inform you, educate you, equip you, right? Share with you some truths. And once you know what some of those truths are, if you'll just come back next month, some of them may have changed. (laughs) Right, Dr. Smith? Yeah, because science and the medical world is, uh, they're learning things every day. And those things are um, changing and, and evolving. So, uh, how many of you are new in the room? First time? Awesome, great. My name is Nikki Buckaloo, and I'll be your moderator today. And along with our team of sponsors and uh, hosts in the back of the room, we welcome you. And how many of you have been here to the Senior Living Truth Series since the beginning? Raise your hand. You've been coming since we started. Yeah, look around. Lots of people, right? So we're in our fourth year, those of you who are new. And so just as a quick reminder, a couple of housekeeping items, okay? So in the back of the room, all of these sponsors are responsible for this being a free event. Yay. They're also... For it being an event that we don't sell you anything, okay? We're just here to educate, and if you choose to do business with any of these uh, businesses or individuals, we would love that, but you're certainly not obligated to do that. Um, Our sponsors, I mean, our uh, panelists are amazing, fully vetted experts in the field, and we do our best to make sure that we're bringing people up here that know their stuff. Right? And I feel like today is no exception to that rule. So in your, in your handouts, real quick, you have uh, a handout that says the truth about your aging brain. And you can make notes on that. That's yours to keep. It has the name of our uh, panelists, although we do have one panelist that I did not get on there, uh, Jackie Dunlap, with the Director of Nursing at Spanish Cove. You'll want to add her name to the uh, list of panelists for today. I'm hearing music. Tommy, are you watching movies? Okay, it went away. It must have been a ringtone. I was afraid it was coming out of the speaker system. That's why I stopped. Okay, all right, good. No music, Tommy. No movies during the truth series. Okay. 
Okay, so you also have at your seat an evaluation form, which you always do. We ask you to fill that out before you leave today. We also have some handouts there on some educational programming that is going on uh, throughout the month and maybe even into next month, I can't remember, with the Villages OKC. How many of your members of Villages OKC? Raise your hand. Great, two, three, four, five people. Okay, if you aren't familiar with Villages OKC, you've got to get familiar with them. They do all kinds of informational seminars so you can learn about what they do. And they also offer a lot of education. And what you're going to learn today, I think, will compel you to engage in some education, whether it's with the Villages OKC or other places. Um, and then what else do you have on your seat there, Floyd? You've got uh, a couple of other handouts. You've got, oh, we're doing some bus tours at the senior living communities. So if you want to take a bus tour, and let me just say something about this because I don't want to forget. We had several people say that they're curious about the different senior living communities in the area and they are a little reluctant to go tour by themselves. So we decided to put together a party bus. Yeah. All right. All right. Party bus. That's the right word. And we're going to serve uh, lots of alcohol. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to get on the party bus at 9 in the morning. We're going to go see three communities, Hefner Mansions, Concordia, and then uh, St. Anne. And then next month, we'll do it again. We have three different communities, including Spanish Cove and Whispering Creek and Southern, Southern Plaza. Plaza. Yeah. And then we're doing it every month. We're going to see three communities every month. Most of them are sponsors. Some of them are not. There's a room on the party bus for 20 people. What we like for you to do is go on one of those trips with us. And here's why. There's the music tent. Whoever's ringtone is music, if you would mute your phone, that would be awesome. Okay, so here's what we're going to do on the party bus. We're going to go see these communities, and then we're going we're to educate you on the tour about how to interview these communities. Okay? So it's not meant for you to go pick a community. It's not like a real estate tour where we go, okay, there's three houses, pick one. That's not what it is. It's a tour basically to help you learn how to, how to go tour. Then you can go tour your own three. Okay? Does that make sense? Yes? Okay, so if you want to do that, you can also check the box on the eval that you want to do that, and someone will contact you to make sure that you get on the bus either this month or one of the future months. They also have a sign-up sheet at my booth at OPC Mature Moves and Buffalo Realty Groups. Okay? All right, enough housekeeping for today. I really am not joking about the music thing. Anybody else here? Oh, you. I don't hear it. <laughs> okay. I have a little ADD, and I hope the Dr. Smith can help me with that today, but right now it's just it's Okay, so, your, your aging brain. Does anybody here have one? Yeah? Okay, so just double checking that everybody has one. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to I'm going to switch over to a new PowerPoint. I'm going to bring our panelists up, and if, if we don't get this right, just bear with me. So turn to your neighbor and say, "You have a beautiful brain." Come on up, panelists.
presenter presenting with a presenter. And it's always interesting when you're sharing the stage with somebody who's an experienced and practiced uh, presenter. And so Dr. Smith has agreed to make me look good as long as I make him look good, right? Okay, but you're carrying the show today. I just want you to know that. All right. So what we're going to do is normally when he presents, and if you've never gone to one of his presentations, he does a fair number of them around uh, the city. He is the, let me see if I get this right. You are the medical director of the Neuroscience Institute of Mercy Hospital. That's correct. Correct. And he is a bona fide neurosurgeon. So if anybody here needs to have their brain cut on, he has retired from that. So he's not here to cut on anybody's brains, right? Everybody's safe. Everybody's safe today. Okay. Um, and he presents all over the city and does different talks on stroke prevention and cardio, uh, cardiovascular um, health. Disorders. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about himself, but I got to know him through a real estate conversation, just ironically, right? And I always believe that things happen for a reason. And we met, and we didn't end up doing business together, but when I decided to do this topic, I had this connection, right? And he agreed to speak. I didn't even have to go through the mercy, you know, click one here, two here, four here, 12 here either. Our website's gotten better. Awesome. Okay. All right. Um, also, so just to, you want to give them any other background about what you do and who you are, and then um, and I'm going to ask the ladies to do the same. Sure. Yep. Yes. Thank, thank you, Nikki. And Chris, it's really a privilege to be able to address you this morning on a topic that concerns all of us because all of us age. So my role as a neurosurgeon has been medical director of Mercy Neuroscience for several years, and we've developed several centers of excellence. Actually, we're the largest group of neuroscience specialists between St. Louis and Opinions. We have 39 doctors and a variety of uh, specialties. So I, I sort of act as Secretary of State for that group. Yeah. As Henry Kissinger says, peace is at hand. So uh, sometimes those doctors all have their ideas. So that's that's what I do. I can't imagine. That's probably like hurting realtors. Hurting doctors is probably a lot like hurting realtors, which I always say is like hurting cats. Some have described it that way, and some have described it as scalded cats. Oh. <laughs> So we may bring you back for the truth about healthcare in a couple months. <laughs> Interesting subject. Yeah. All right. So uh, if you want to pass the mic to Miss Jackie, and so Jackie is comes to us from Spanish Co. and is the director of nursing there over their long-term care area. So Jackie, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, I've been at Spanish Co. for 14 years. Um, I've been a nurse for 15 years. All of it has been in the long-term care um, area of Spanish Co. Um, is what we do every day is I just take care of skilled patients that may need rehab to go back home or take care of the long-term care patients, most of them dealing with dementia. And when I asked Jackie, how many of the people that you work with on a daily basis are dealing with some sort of brain-related uh, health issue, what was your response? About 90%. Okay. So we brought her and, uh, and Trish as well. Trish, you want to, let's go ahead and introduce yourself and then I want to give them the idea of the makeup of the panel and then we'll get going. So Trish. Okay, uh, my name is Trish Ingram and I'm Vice President of Operations at Bailey Living Centers and I have a Master's in Gerontology. I have a love for the gerontolog gerontological field, so I have pursued uh, adult day health care as my, my passion and my mission and that's uh, God's given mission for me and um, we perform that at, at um, all of the adult day centers here in Oklahoma. There are about 30 or so in the state. Um, Daily Living Centers is the oldest and largest. We have four centers, and uh, one of them is just right down here on Rockwell, so not too far, but they are all located in the metro area. 
Perfect. And about how many uh, percentage-wise of the folks that you all deal with on a regular basis have brain-related or cognitive-related issues? Yeah, they're probably about 60%, and we serve over uh, 200 a month. So about 60% of those have some kind of cognition issue, uh, be it um, you know Alzheimer's, dementia, stroke recovery, uh, Parkinson's, things like that. Okay. And adult day also includes people 18 and older, right? It's not just for seniors. That is correct, 18 and older. Okay, perfect. All right, so the reason I kind of have this, it's an interesting makeup, isn't it, right? So we have a medical practitioner, a surgeon, in fact, and then we have people who are in nursing and also in, in social work. And what I wanted you to get a picture of is not just the clinical aspect of brain health, but also the social aspect, right, and the caregiving aspect of it. So we're going to kind of cover a broad spectrum today. And hopefully uh, from this conversation, you'll learn some things that maybe you haven't heard in other uh, contexts, okay? All right, so we're going to start. I'm going to ask Dr. Smith the first question, and then I may be done. So we'll just see how it goes. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, first question. How does the brain change from time, the time we're in our 20s to the time someone reaches, say, their 60s, 70s, 70s, 80s, or beyond? I'll just stand. Yep. Okay. See, I told you. Yep. He, he and I both are standards, so he's going to go. We'll uh, just put a few slides up, and I'll sort of speak from the slides. And basically, as we age, our brain begins to uh, mature. I'm going to put it that way. Because uh, our, all of our organs begin to, to change a little bit. And this slide kind of illustrates some of that in the sense that uh, we have uh, age 30. See right there? It's kind of downhill after that. And again, our, our different brain uh, parts begin to neurotransmitters, the part that the chemical that makes me able to talk to you, you and right hear what I'm saying, see what I'm saying, all happening at, happening at the speed of light with what we call neurotransmitters or chemicals, and the brain produces these things. So they begin to deteriorate a little bit. The brain substance begins to shrink down some over time. So these are failing things, and I say failing, it's just a process of aging. It doesn't have to be bad, but it's just what happens. That's the way we're created. Our uh, blood sugar begins to drop and get a little bit more difficult. It goes up sometimes. Our heart function gets a little not quite as strong. Our kidney function, uh, uh, lung function, our entire organ system, now, I have a perspective on organ systems, brain, kidneys, lungs. Everything in our body is created to keep our brain alive and healthy. Everything. So if any of these systems begin to fail, our brain doesn't do as well. In addition to that, the brain is also aging. So it's a process. Our whole goal is to keep the brain as age-free, the consequences of age, as possible. So that's basically what happens. We, we begin to go kind of downhill after 25 or 30. And we're just created like that. But we're going to okay. talk to you about a few things that help us stabilize that. Can I take a survey of the room real quick? Is there anybody in the room that's 30 or under? If so, raise your hand. OK, so, so it's OK for us to be a little irritated with those millennials right that, now. That, that's OK. We all think we're 30 or That's right. That's the difference. <laughs> that never goes away. That ship has sailed for me, too. So. Um, so what you're saying, I'm going to just make sure I understand before you go to the next slide, is that it's, it's the fact of life, right? Our bodies are going to change after about 30, and but there are some things you're going to share with us today to help us mitigate some of that loss. Yeah, we want to, yeah. can we slow that? Can That's the question. Okay. Absolutely. We're, remember, we're created like this. We have fears that were created and things happen between okay. birth and the end. By design. Yes. 
Can I ask you a quick question about this? So I watch a lot of TED Talks. And uh, you know what TED Talks are? Yeah, on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so TED Talks. And there are a couple of guys that believe that aging is a disease, and they're trying to cure the disease of aging. That's certainly an admirable concept. But unfortunately, there are the laws of nature. There's a law that the Lord put us together in a certain way. And those things we can't reverse. We're not designed to live forever physically. Okay, so that's what they're trying to do. Just say it. I don't know if I'm okay with that. It makes me a little nervous. Well, it's certainly something to hope for, but we can't expect that. Okay. All right. I don't know if I hope for it. You know, I did a thing in January called The Truth About Living to Be 100. You guys remember that? And when I said, we're going to talk about the truth about living to 100, how many of you want to live to 100? And they all went, ugh. <laughs> so well, if the thought of living to forever is a little bit more scarier. Physically, that's right. Correct. Yes. Okay. And, uh, yeah, if we could live to 100 and have perfect health, perfect mentation, our brain works well, that'd be great. That's and we're going to show a slide of what we call blue zones, where there are areas of the world that maybe have some of that. Perfect. Okay, keep going. I'll quit bugging you. Maybe. When we talked about neurotransmitters, that's the chemicals that transmit. We have billions of nerve cells. We have trillions of supporting cells and probably tens of trillions of connections in the brain. But those things depend on these chemicals called neurotransmitters. And we can see that in time, those neurotransmitters begin to deteriorate a little bit. And as they do, um, this ain't working correctly. As they do, this is a brain scan. This is a, C, a, a MRI scan. It shows a very healthy brain, plenty of tissue, plenty of neurotransmitters. This is as we age. And you can see the brain cavities begin to get a little larger. And the neurotransmission function, this is a PET scan. And you just don't see it quite as intense as when we're young as when we age. And look what happens with age. This is a neurotransmitter lost with uh, age, and it deteriorates. And this is the news that sometimes is a little more depressing. Men have a little more rapid deterioration than our ladies. Well, we've been saying so, that for years. That's not fact, us, us men have a brain connection that's different than women. And that's why we can't multitask very well. And that's why we sometimes get not quite as sharp as we age. But as we age, we get wisdom. And that's the important thing. We don't have to learn quite as much. So sometimes there's a difference between men and women and our wisdom. But anyway, it does work. We want to debate that or we want to keep going? No, we better go. Okay. <laughs> I have an opinion, though. You know what? This is the place to share that, if you'd like. Then I'm a male, so therefore oh. I'm right, aren't I? Yeah. But then I learned to be, it's better to be happy than right. I learned it. Right, yes. because if Rana ain't happy, they ain't happy. That's right. All right. Okay, so the neurotransmitters, we, re we lose neurotransmitters with age, yeah? Yes. Okay. And you're going to tell us in a little while, though, how we can compensate for some of that loss, yeah? That's correct. Okay. All right. Ladies, anything you want to chime in yet? Because I'm feeling like he's carrying us right now. Okay, good. Okay. Right, keep going. So, there's a concept that's really very interesting. It's called cognitive reserve. In other words, our ability to think and function, what we call our executive functions. Um, those, are, those are functions that allow us to get through each day in an orderly fashion. We can set our alarm. We can get up. And as Adrian Peterson says, there's some things you do to start your day. Number one, you get up on time. Number two, you make your bed. Number three, you start out. You stand up straight. 
If you can do those three things, you're off to a great start. <laughs> so those are basic executive functions. But then it goes to can we uh, can we uh, can we interact with our individual to live in our home and have a conversation? Can we keep our checkbook? Can we make financial decisions? Can we uh, get in the car, go to the grocery store, remember where we are and what we went for, even with a list? Do we get lost when we come home? Do we have functions of every day that allow us to function as individuals? And those are those are called executive functions. And if we begin to lose those, that tells us our brain's not doing as well as we would like. That neurotransmitters are failing some. The brain actually is undergoing physical changes. It's deteriorating and shrinking down some. So that's what we look at. So how do you really uh, maintain our cognitive reserve? We want to have plenty of reserve. Remember, aging, we have wisdom now. We don't have to go back and learn our multiplication tables and how to read and how to write. That's all in our brain. So now we use that information for daily activity. We call that our executive function. So, Dr. Smith? Yes. So when would we be concerned that that's not, when is it no longer normal? When should you become concerned? Everybody misplaces their keys, yes. but when does that become a concern? Yeah, good, good, good question. When, can, when, we, when should we be concerned? Well, when those functions begin to deteriorate. For instance, uh, if you get confused, uh, even in your own home, if you lose your keys and absolutely can't find them every day, that's not a good sign. If you begin to make mistakes in your checkbook, if you begin to be extremely irritable, begin to be emotional, over, overly anxious, terribly depressed, all those things show that the brain's not working as well. There can be many social causes for some of that, but we're just talking about activities of daily living. Does that, does that answer your question? So I read something about, or uh, heard on a TED Talk, so I, and I'm sure, you know, as doctors, you guys have got to get tired of hearing that. I saw this on the internet. Sure. We, we deal with yeah. that. Okay. <laughs> so it, so if, you, if you put your keys in a bowl every day, and then in that day you were in a hurry, you forgot to put them in the bowl, yeah. and you couldn't find them, that's kind of typical. I do that yeah, that, yeah. If you leave them in your pocket or whatever. Exactly. But if you put them in the fridge, and then later you go, oh, there are my keys, they're in the fridge, and you thought that that's where they were supposed to go, that might be... That's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. Just asking for free. Yeah. And, <laughs> or if you can't find the bowl, you've got the keys, you don't want to find the bowl. And the bowl has a food. That's exactly right. right. Okay, you got it. But we all have some imperatives in our, in our memory and things like that. Because it's the neurotransmitter. Yeah, yeah. But, but we can, uh, it comes to us. Oh, I know that person, then you get past them, and oh, I know who that was, but you can't recall their name immediately. That's all minimal cognitive impairment. I'm sure you all see many degrees of that in your work as well. So let me ask them a quick question just about that. Sure. So ladies, as this shows up in your world, when do you see most people show up in the daily uh, day centers or in residential care? Uh, do you see them show up early in this process, or late in the process, or somewhere in between? What do you see? No, it's, it's usually much later in the process, and it's usually a spouse or a sibling or the child of, of the adult that comes in, um, if they are older. And um, so a lot of times, it's they've already, the family member who the caregiver, the primary caregiver, is just absolutely exhausted. And now they start reaching out to look for a place, now what can I do? I want to keep my loved one at home or in their home of their choice, but I'm at my wit's end and how can I get some help with that? And that's when they start asking around, start looking. 
Um, adult day in particular is um, uh, just a godsend for so many people. It was for me, I was a caregiver, and I didn't know until six months into it, working full time, my husband's self-employed, we can't miss work, we're caring for his grandmother in our home, raising two children, and it was six months before um, her neurologist said, well, you can either put her in a nursing home or there's this place down the street and it's an adult day center. That for me was a lifesaver. So a lot of times we don't know it until it just slaps us in the face um, and we're just so exhausted that we just start grasping for whatever we possibly can. And for me, being in a facility, it's a little bit different um, because we are a CCRC. Um, we have a lot of nurses that have their eyes on patients and our marketing team and stuff are very involved. So we seem to get them as early as possible as we can or that their families are ready or their spouse is ready because to us it's better for them to adjust um, when they still have some memory so okay so let me just walk people through this real quick Jackie so you've got folks that are living in the independent living area right right and so they're living in the independent area and maybe um, you're starting to notice the memory decline correct they already know that there's an area of the campus that offers support for that right. right so they're kind of thinking well if this progresses to a point then we'll move over there Correct. to that area. So when you just said what caught my attention was you said we want people to transition over to that other part of the building while they can still adjust. What happens if they wait? Um, if they wait, um, it's much harder on the resident themselves and the families because unfortunately when you're a family member and you are in it in the trenches every day, you compensate for some of that behavior. So you at that point do not know how far they progressed until you've dropped them off with me and they can't recall what they ate five seconds ago or that you even visited in the day. Um, so for example, we had a resident, um, he was with us for 10 years. Um, he was mildly, had mild dementia when he moved in, but to the day that he passed at 10 years, he could recall his room. And he would tell you, I need some help in 129. That made him want to go to his room, but because we acclimated him to his area and his surroundings, it was in his memory. Um, because the short-term memory is what they have a problem with. So as soon as we can acclimate them, the better it is for the resident, the family, and the staff. Perfect. Dr. Smith, back to you. We're going to go to that slide again, you said, right? Yes, just briefly. Okay. Uh, I might Thank just you, show Jeff. you this cognitive reserve. You see this line up here? That's the higher cognitive reserve. We're going to talk about how we might maintain that. This is the lower reserve, and we're going to have a faster deterioration in our mentation if it's down here as opposed to up here. Would you define mentation? Mentation is our ability to think, function, communicate, everything we do with our brain to be interacting with you, you're listening and seeing. That's all mentation function. And it's memory, it's ability to read, write emotions, the whole process. So is what she, they were both describing, if someone um, acclimates to a new environment when they're at that high, they have higher reserves. Exactly. That way when they begin to decline. That's right. The biggest problem that we see, I think, and I'm sure you all see this in your areas, is that uh, a change of environment is very upsetting. And it's uh, in the earlier that that change can be made, the better we, our brain will adapt to that. This, that's just the way we are. We like our routine. If we get out of the routine, we all get upset. Yeah. We get anxious. We get a little depressed. But you know, frankly, from the real estate perspective, see, I'm not in the medical world, but here's where I see it. I'll go into somebody's home and they'll say, my wife or husband or, care or loved one 
is beginning to have memory issues and I'm trying to think about what we might do down the road and I tell them kind of what their options are and then here's what I hear every time. We're going to stay here as long as humanly possible. And my response is usually longer is not always better, right? But it's hard for them to make that decision because they don't really know what to expect. Well, and that's a very normal response. Right? We all have a degree of denial. You know, and there's nothing wrong with my memory. And that we think that way. That's just normal. Well, every man I know thinks that. <laughs> Slide. We have our, our transmitters don't they See, it's quicker. medical science is telling us. And our brain connections are different. We we have we have now brain mapping and we see there's a difference. So we're not brain damaged, we're just different. Some of the factors that would increase, how do we keep our cognitive reserve up there so that we can make changes and adapt so much quicker so when you all are called into action to see, uh, to, to take care of the individual, how, how does that work? Well, the th biggest problem I see in, in healthcare is hypertension. That is the most detrimental thing. It's high blood pressure. High blood pressure. The most detrimental thing to our brain of anything that we do that we can actually change. We found that blood pressures much above 120 over 70 are very tough on the brain and the kidney function. So both of those areas are very sensitive. But since we're just talking about brain, that's what we'll speak about. So you need to keep your pressure down. Well, how do you do that? Well, diet. Do you want to talk yeah, about Yeah, okay. let's do it. We're gonna, they don't want to, but we're going to talk about now, diet. Nobody wants to hear this part. So our Oklahoma diet is very unhealthy, very high in calories, very high in fat, very high in salt. So, the diet that I recommend for my patient is, this is real simple, doesn't take a book, doesn't take anything. If that food, when you pass through the line at the grocery store or the buffet line or the menu, you think, has that food ever had a face or a mother? If it has, don't eat it. Now that sounds a little ridiculous, but it's an easy thing to remember. So animal protein is very detrimental to our, our our health. In excess or entirely? Well, uh, there's an individual from the Cleveland Clinic. His name is Caldwell Esselstyn, what a name. But he's a vascular, uh, a vascular physician, surgeon actually, but he was seeing so many patients that had terrible vascular disease, peripheral, their leg uh, circulation, their brain, heart, it's all damaged because of, of their, of their uh, uh, vascular disease. And he put his patients that were, had no other hope on a diet. No animal protein, zero. Not even oil, not even fish oil, not even olive oil. Totally. And he reversed their disease. Absolutely reversed it. And you can see on this slide, uh, here is coronary artery. See this? It's very narrow. And the thickness of the artery is quite large. Infl this is an inflammatory response on this scan. And here's the coronary artery. See this little, this little Y-shaped thing? That's the coronary artery that feeds the heart blood. It's got to have it. It's very irregular, very ratty. With uh, the uh, medical treatment and uh, this particular diet, the artery opens up and the artery gets quite a bit more generous, more looking, normal. That's just with diet. And 
And that affects our brain? Absolutely. But we're using a coronary uh, example here. Here's another one where the, look at this coronary, this is left anterior descending coronary. This is the one that causes sudden uh, death and sudden change and sudden heart attacks. Look how ratty that looks. This is Dr. Esselstyn's diet, three months on an absolute plant-based diet. That means no double cheeseburgers and fries. Does Chris Buckle live in the room? Chris Buckle There he is. He just went out the door. Like I say, some people get up and they don't listen to anything else I say. But here's the diet. Look at the coronary. Look what's happened. That same thing will happen to our carotid artery. As we get, that, that supplies blood to our brain. There's another artery called the vertebral. It, it, it clears up as well. The tiny arteries in our brain, they clear up. So you can uh, maintain your cognitive reserve just by diet. And possibly prevent stroke, yeah? Stroke, exactly. Stroke uh, is from heart to the arteries. Uh, actually, does anybody ever, does anybody here take statins while we're talking? Sure, it would take statins. Anybody that doesn't want to take a statin, it's okay. You know, there's a lot of controversy. But remember, cholesterol is a liquid. It is, it's a, it's a liquid, it's not a solid. And when it's deposited in our arteries because we've had too many cheeseburgers, uh, that is deposited and our body responds and tries to, to get rid of it. And as a result, those crystal, the cholesterol goes from a liquid to a crystal and it pops through the artery surface inside. And when that happens, it's turbulence. And what happens in turbulence? The platelets stick, a clot develops, a clot breaks loose, you have a heart attack or a stroke. And that's absolutely proven that cholesterol will crystallize if you're not on a statin. You mix the statin with the cholesterol, it will not crystallize, or minimal crystallization. So the thing that causes our sudden heart attack, sudden stroke, it's a ruptured artery. It's, it's a plaque, a, a cholesterol heart of the artery plaque that is crystallized and popped through the interior and a clot has occurred. Once you get a heart scan, oh my God, calcium. Then those calciums, they're not going to rupture. It's the ones you can't see that rupture. Okay, so let's just kind of recap real quick. So we talked about the plant-based diet. Yes. Would you show them the blue zones of the yes. slide as well and talk about that? Uh, let me back up. And, oh, yeah. yeah. So talk about what that means. Yeah. What that is. You see these these areas. There, there's Loma Linda, California, of all places. Here is. Uh, Nicaea or Nikea, Costa Rica, here's Sardinia, Italy, and here's the town in Greece, and here's Okinawa, Japan. And the National Geographic, a fellow named Dan Bootner, uh, was a worked with a group, and he noticed as they were traveling all over the world, there were some towns where people were ancient, 100 years old, them, and they were healthy. They walked every day. They had basically a piscatarian diet, mainly vegetables and fish. They didn't smoke, didn't use any alcohol. They had one small glass of red wine in the evening at five o'clock. When you ask somebody how much red wine do you drink, oh, just one. Is it an iced tea glass full or is it three or four ounces? So you need to, need to ask that. It's an important question. An iced tea glass hurts your brain badly. So too much alcohol, very detrimental. So a small glass of, of uh, red wine. Absence of stress, absence of stress. There's a part of our brain called the hippocampus size of your thumbnail on each side of our brain, kind of right behind the eye, sort of inside. That's our RAM memory of our brain. You know, if you have a computer and you don't have much RAM memory in it, you may have a ton of material stored on your hard drive or a big software to use. If your RAM memory isn't working, you can't load any of that, or it may take you all day. So our brain has a RAM memory. It's called the hippocampus. 
And the hippocampus is probably one of the most uh, 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 fragile parts of our brain. It's subject to high blood pressure, it's subject to stress, it's subject to anxiety. All of those things cause our body to produce cortisone. And that, that too much cortisone attacks our, our uh, hippocampus and it begins to deteriorate, losing, losing uh, neurons, the nerve cells and the connection, they begin to lose. So you can't remember very well. You can remember what happened 50 years ago or 20 years ago, but you can't remember what you did just now. You can remember how you got here in this room because your hippocampus wasn't working very well. So all these things help our hippocampus. Okay, so let me ask a question that's a little off topic. I, I get on the side, she's got to keep me. Keep well, me no, I, you know, this is my show, so I get to ask I know. questions. <laughs> and, and I said sometimes I have to have a hook to get yeah. me out. So from a real estate agent perspective, is moving one of the biggest stressors in a person's life? Absolutely. Yeah. So can, during that process, when someone is taking in all this information, and let's say they have a move in 20, 30, 40 years even, or more. Can that affect their memory, short-term memories, and is that a temporary situation, or how do you, I mean, because I see it a lot, and I'm just wondering, is that some part of the brain that's really being affected? Yeah, it is, and it, it is very, you just simply can't handle the new information. It's very upsetting. However, if you have that reserve and you make your move in time, then your hippocampus is going to be able to adapt a little quicker to your new environment. You can adapt quicker. I'm sure you all, I think that's what you said. There's a stress level at the beginning of someone's transition to day, day centers and residential too, right? So we just opened a new um, expansion where I work. And um, we have residents that have dementia that have been in their rooms for a long time. And we moved them to the new area and we had increased falls. We had to medicate some of the patients because they just couldn't handle the process of not knowing where the room is, not the same path to the dining room, not you know the same exact look on the walls. Even though we set it up to be, you know, look similar, it was very, very stressful on every single one of the residents that had to move. And so what do you think the adaptation time looks like? What are you guys expecting or what can we expect? Well, we've been in there about six weeks, and I still have a couple that have not adapted all the way. Um, and I don't know that they ever will because they were further along in their disease process. So um, I don't know that some of them ever will adapt. But a few of them that you know came over in a timely manner and they weren't as far in the process, they seem to adapt better. Okay. What do you think, Trish, when you see people come into your day center? Yeah, it takes um, about two weeks for them to kind of adapt. Um, it depends on you know how the family, how supportive the family is. If the spouse caregiver is reluctant, then that feeds into that um, loved one's reluctance as well. But if you can convince them, the loved one, or excuse me, the caregiver, that this is a positive experience, and this is not only for the caregiver because a lot of them have um, caregiver guilt. Um, it's my responsibility. I need to take care of my spouse. This is what I'm supposed to do. Um, if you can convince them that they're taking care of themselves as well as their loved one, you're getting them out of the house, you're giving them something to do. Uh, we do require at daily living centers that they come one day a week, and part of that is because then that becomes what they look forward to. They've got that day a week. They may not know that I come on Monday or come on Wednesday, but they know it is that day. I get up today, I get cleaned up, and I'm going to go see my friends at the day center. So they really, about two weeks into it, sometimes they're reluctant, sometimes they're not. If they're reluctant, we ask the doctor. 
um, to write prescriptions for their therapy. And we tell them that the day center is their therapy, and then our staff gets them engaged. And so really, after about the second week, they're, they're acclimated and they're doing you know, really well. They're looking forward to it, they're making friends. This pink day is bingo three days a week. Um, so everybody has a great time with that, so they really look forward to it. But I did want to touch on, um, Dr. Smith, the, the uh, cortisol. And um, when I was doing some uh, reading research on caregiving stress, their cortisol, caregivers' cortisol levels are increased as well. And it is a well-known fact that caregivers often pass before their loved one because of that stress. So part of that is, you know, get them in and get them in early, but also to um, save the caregiver themselves. Take care of yourself. Take so you care, take of, care of those around you. Yeah. yeah. It's just like that. It's just like that. Um, you know, when you when you're on an airplane and they say, even if you have small children, to put the mask on yourself first and then you help your children. It's the same thing. You've got to give yourself a little bit of oxygen. You've got to give yourself some time to rest, to recuperate, to run some errands, whatever you need to do, and not feel guilty about it, but know that also your loved one is in good hands yeah. and they're taken care of. Yeah, Jack, you wanna add to that before we Yeah, we kind of run across that thing too, and I think that, you know, the caregivers exhibit a lot of the forgetfulness and all that stuff because their stress levels are raised, and the whole point of caring for someone is not so they outlive you. So we encourage our caretakers as well to take the break and make sure that they know that we can take care of them so that way it's better for the resident to not feel like they're a burden. It's a team effort. Yeah, it's a team effort. It does take a village, in fact. Yeah, and that's respite care for the caregiver. Yeah. And it's interesting when you're talking about caregiver depression. That's very common. And that damages hippocampus. We actually see loss of brain cells in the hippocampus with high stress, high depression. And this is a huge burden. So just need, need to be aware of it. Okay, blue zones. Blue zones. Yeah, so yeah. those those diets there you said are the, if they have a mother or a face. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Yeah. Although you said they do eat fish and some of those, that's yeah. probably all they have to eat. Yeah, it's a pescatarian diet. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's true. And also it's the absence of stress, uh, a good social environment, a spiritual environment, church or synagogue, that's where you, where uh, peace can, can be found. Favorable genetics are important, obviously, but that's not all of it, as, as we've said. What did you say to me about heredity? Heredity. Heredity blows the gun. It's, it's prepared. Environment pulls the trigger. That's the way you need to think about it. So environment is all the things that we consider, you know, diet, high blood pressure, LDL, uh, absence of statins, all that kind of thing. That's environment, and it will, in, Initiate any latent, or uh, you know, uh, lurking in the in the in the shadows, ge a genetic issue. Yeah. So if you have it in your family, you know it. Then you should take extra care and caution. Absolutely. We all have our. Yeah. We, we can't argue with our genetics. We're born with them, so we have to deal with them. Talk to me a little bit about falls, real quick, because um, that was a big one, and yes. I know these ladies can talk about that too. Yeah. But what happens? What? Why does? Why are people more susceptible to fatal falls when they're older? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, number one is where our brain doesn't function as well. We can't think as well. We can't react as well. If we're walking down the street, we have to do steps, or the uh, environment, the surface is uneven. It's more of a challenge. We think our, our brain 
what happens is we get a little peripheral neuropathy as we age. We all have it. Our feet get a little numb and tingly. If we have diabetes, it's a little worse. That information that you're normally used to, your brain is normally used to having, where are your feet in space? Are you taking a step? Are you going up and down stairs? Are you running, walking? What are you doing? Your brain's not getting the information. So therefore, you think, well, I think I'll just step right here. And your brain doesn't know you're going that way, and bang, you fall down. The other thing is that we see neurosurgically, and my, I want to tell everybody, including myself, stay off of ladders, no ladders. What about step stools and benches? If, okay? if you have a step stool with a with a with a bar around it, they're made. They make them. Yeah. Get one of those things. Do not get on a step ladder or even a three footer. You will fall off. I will guarantee you. The other thing is, stay out of attics. Do not get in your attic for any reason, and unless you have a stairway with a rail and you've got an elevator that takes stuff up and down. Otherwise, do not get in your attic. We see what happens. People fall out. Because you think, well, here, I'll, come, I'll step right next to that opening where I'm going to take this thing down the stairs. Fall down because your brain isn't getting the information. You're not as coordinated. Your brain thinks, oh, I'm 30, I can do fine. But you're not. And the most devastating injuries I see in neurosurgery are people falling down off a ladder or out of the attic. It's usually fatal. They hit their head. What should they do and why? Uh, as we age, our brain, as I said, it withers a little bit. You saw that first slide where we just don't have as much tissue of our brain, our cavities of the brain enlarge, the surface shrinks down a little bit, there's more room in your skull inside. And as a result of that, if you just bang your head, or you, you know, you just hit it on a cabinet, or if you bang it somewhere in the car, your brain moves around some. And usually that's not a problem, except that you can tear a tiny little vessel that's, normally the brain is stuck up against this, well, one of the coverings of the, of the brain, but it's stuck up against the skull, and it doesn't move around much for a young person. The brain's you know, full and robust. But as we age, the brain becomes a little more prune-like. That's an exaggeration, but it gives you a, a, a visual. And as, as a result, when the brain is banged around a little bit, it just moves, which we don't want. And that can cause a little blood vessel tear, and then that you don't even know what's happened. And pretty soon, individuals get a little confused. They may have a little weakness on one side. You think maybe they're having a stroke. They're not. They have a subdural hematoma. It's a, clot develops over a period of days or weeks and that's when people get in trouble we have to operate those folks. and you said those are easily operated on those well, most common yeah, yeah there is probably no the most common is the high blood pressure hemorrhage inside the brain itself that's the most common we those are not fixable surgically but the subdural that's on the outside of the brain and we can evacuate that surgically but what if they wait a couple of days? Because what I hear people say is, oh, I fail. I'm going to wait a couple of days to see yeah. how I'm doing. And that's fine. That's fine because uh, if you have an acute subdural, that's an acute massive bleeding over the ear. You're not going to wait. You're going to be calling the ambulance because individuals are unconscious, paralyzed, and not going to do well. But a chronic subdural, our brain is like a sponge. And the sponge, if you take the sponge and it's nice and wet, and you begin to squeeze it, you get the water out of it. And the, the brain can adapt to that. It can be squeezed slowly, and it will squeeze out the water, and finally it can't take any more squeezing, and it begins to malfunction. An acute clot, it doesn't it squeezes so fast that the brain malfunctions. Okay. So they should go see the emergency room if they have any, like, symptoms from a fall. Yeah. Better than that, in a lot more orderly environment, is your family physician. Okay. Emergency rooms are chaotic. And uh, sometimes you've got to wait a long time, except if you come in with a stroke. 
And our door to needle time uh, for treating stroke at, at uh, Mercy can be as quick as 15 minutes, but we want everybody to be treated under 30 minutes. So you want me to tell you what my dad told me? He went in recently to an emergency room, uh, not Mercy, it was out in Yukon at Integris, and he said uh, he went in because he has COPD and he wasn't breathing well. So he drove himself 50 miles to an emergency room. And, um, He's a self-reliant person? Yes. And he went in and they immediately got to him, put him on all these things and took, attended to him like that. Well, so then about two weeks later, he went back to the emergency room because he had shingles. Yes. And it took him two hours to get to him. He said, you know, from now on, I'm going to tell him I can't breathe. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. We in the emergency room respond to can't breathe, no blood pressure, unconscious, stroke, quick. Shingles is a tough thing. But it's not an absolute emergency. Anything else we need to add to any of that? Okay, falls. I want to ask you guys about how you handle falls when someone is in your care. Um, we do have nurses on staff. Every center is, is um, staffed with one to two nurses. And then all of our aides are uh, certified nurse aides or medication aides, and they're all trained in CPR. And uh, we've got a protocol where two attend, one runs and calls 911, get the nurse out there. Um, so that's how we respond to it. But you also have some preventative measures too. Sure, sure. We do have um, our, all of our participants, is what they're called, all of our participants come to us with um, a physician order, which is what we provide to the, uh, excuse me, the caregiver. They take that to the doctor. So we kind of know what medications they're on, which may cause you know, a drop in their blood pressure or something else that may, or if they have a propensity to be, to, um, be a fall risk. And so we will either do a standby assist, which means we walk along with them when they need to go to the restroom or go from one table to the next. Um, so yeah, we do have quite a few. There's a lot of care taken yeah. so that we don't have a fall, hopefully. Right, right. Anything from your side, Jackie? Um, when we first get a patient in, um, believe it or not, um, there's such a thing called medication-induced dementia. Some medications can cause dementia-like effects. So we go through the medication list. We get rid of all non-essential medications because certain medications interact with each other, which can cause a memory deficit. So that's the first thing we do. Um, we also make sure that until a resident is acclimated to the environment, they are checked on very frequently. Um, we have one of the highest staffing ratios in the state. Um, because when you're dealing with dementia patients, they may not always need a lot of help physically, but they definitely need a lot of attention because they need reminding, they need cueing, they need and sometimes they just don't know what they need. Um, and when we go back to falls, I, we, in our environment, we realize that even if a resident doesn't immediately um, pass away from a fall, we've noticed if they have dementia and they no longer can remember their safety cues, they no longer can remember to pull a call light, they can no longer remember to ask for help, or that we have some that just can't remember, they can't walk, they don't remember their muscles don't work. So they go to stand up and they fall immediately. So we've also noticed that those residents that fall and break a hip and maybe don't, you know, pass away immediately do eventually within, you know, a few months pass away from that because they lose their ADLs. They lose the ability to get up and participate and pretty much have a failure to thrive. So, you know, you mentioned to me on the phone about uh, soft restraints, yes. that the medical industry. Would you talk about the changes in yeah, that? Yeah, and I'd certainly like to segue from what you all have said. In the hospital, falls are our biggest issue. We have. Uh, alarms on beds, chairs, even the commode has an alarm on. And patients, we all 
I want to get up to the bathroom. And you just start up and your brain is not functioning properly and you fall down and you break a hip or hit your head. And that is a constant problem. No matter how many personnel are in the hospital to take care of each patient, just like you all have in your facilities, individuals, we all still fall down. Because what is it? Our brain tells us we're 30 years old, we're gonna get up and do that, we've always done that. And our, our muscles don't function and we fall down. And that is a huge problem. You know, so, I, on a side note, I, I found that we see a lot of articles in the paper about so-and-so fell at such-and-such healthcare place and uh, the family's suing the healthcare facility for this. And, you know, I think the problem that I see, and this is the truth about, you know, the brain, is that somebody wants to blame somebody for something when something happens. And I think there has to be the question mark of how much of this can we actually prevent and how much of this actually is a, a problem that that community didn't take care of things. Yeah, you can't prevent it. I mean, it's, I don't know how many people fall at home, but at least uh, I'm sure it's happened a lot. But anyway, in the hospital, uh, it's, uh, it's just a huge problem. Yeah. And in facilities, it's a big problem. For us, we're restraint-free. Yeah. So um, we do not use any kind of restraints whatsoever. So we 100% rely on our staff to take care of the patients. We do use um, occasionally a motion sensor, but it doesn't sound in the residence room at all. We try to decrease any um, stimulant so that way they're not constantly hearing noise and think that they need to get up or answer a bell or something. We went to 100% um, call lights do not sound at all in the hallways. They only sound at the nurse's desk. We don't have an intercom system. Um, we've done everything to decrease the stimuli and work on our falls, but we still have we still have falls. They are just some that are absolutely unpreventable, wouldn't you say? Yeah, we're not, if we do, if individuals that we see sometimes are combative uh, because of their brain dysfunction, injuries, or whatever, they're very combative. And they, we are nursing personnel not infrequently has an injury from a combative individual. Now we can restrain those, and uh, temporarily. That, temporarily no more than 24 hours that the physician has to see the patient, rewrite the order in order to have that restraint. But it's for the protection of the patient because if we don't restrain them, they're absolutely not in contact with reality. They will get out of bed and really hurt themselves or hurt the personnel. So it's a very uh, difficult uh, thing to manage. And I'm sure you all have see some of that. I want to switch to the good news. And yes, good news. Let's yeah. have some good, some good yeah. news. So tell us what the good news is and how we can kind of begin to, I think you have a slide on um, some of the uh, yeah, resources. Yeah. And then we're going to open it up for questions. Sure. Okay. There are some books out there. China study was done originally back in the 80s uh, that studied China and there was some areas of China that had a high incidence of stroke heart disease, some that didn't have much of that, and the ones that didn't have much of it were on a plant diet because they didn't have any other animals. Uh, in World War II, the uh, uh, Norwegians were invaded by the Germans and they took away all of their animals, everything, and they had to be on a plant-based diet. Their stroke and heart disease went down precipitously. The answer is not zero, but close. War was over, they got their animals back, and then their stroke and heart disease goes right back. So these, all these uh, uh, books, a whole China study, Eat to Live, Joel Furman, uh, Proteinaholic, uh, all these things say plant-based diet is the secret of longevity and good health. Uh, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, Prevent and Refer Reverse Heart Disease, you've just seen that evidence of what he's done with his coronary artery uh, patients. And his wife has written a textbook, here's how you do it. So those are the uh, practical things that you can uh, understand uh, the details. One other practical thing, I don't think we have a slide for it, but you know, you talked about reserves 
and how learning new things uh, can help you create reserves. Exactly. So what kind of, talk to me about that, what kind of new things? That's called brain plasticity. In other words, brain, our brains never lose its plasticity unless we have a disease process that stops it. But we can learn new things. Remember the hippocampus, that little, little thing in, in your brain tip, the pair of them. If we learn novel stimuli, say you want to learn music or you want to learn a foreign language, you want to do um, a new craft, a new complex thing that requires you to have lots of more executive function, do that. Force yourself to do it, even though it's harder to learn because you see a 25, 30 year old do this without even thinking about it. We struggle with it. But if you do that and have these stimuli, your brain's going to do better. You're going to actually sprout new connections in your hippocampus and other parts of your brain with these stimuli. Well, I it's you, not important that you learn the music. It's no, just no, the no. process. Well, it learning. helps. It <laughs> helps. I, I, I may improve your mood. I did that 10 years ago. I said, well, I think I learned like to play the violin. Had I known it was that hard, I would have never started. But I've done that, and I think it's helped my, my cognitive reserve considerably at my particular age. So people are all the time being sold the bill of goods, I'm told, and you can tell me if I'm right, about crossword puzzles and Sudoku and all these things that they can do to try to stimulate their new... Yeah, I, I think that, that that's it helpful. Good? Is yeah. it helpful? Yeah, okay. and, and some are more gifted at that than others. It depends on how well you process language uh, prior to your aging. But a, a crossword puzzle is basically a memory function, right? It is a memory function, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Sudoku, anything that taxes your memory where you've got to stop and think. Reading books, Le reading, getting new ideas, good conversation, all that makes a difference. Awesome. All right, come sit down. And, or you can stand. I'm sorry. You don't have to sit down. I just, I'm ha that's a habit for me. I just read. read. That's an old habit. I'm, I'm just here to speak. I know. Not he's, so, he's so fine. All right. So um, we're going to open it up to questions. And I'm just going to just say that obviously you've kind of seen these ladies have a whole additional like knowledge base. So we can talk about medical. We can talk about caregiving. We can talk about social resources out there. If we don't know the answer, I might pull up one of our sponsors that could also answer these questions. Okay, so I'm going to start right here, and then I'll come up here to you. All right, Ms. Carter? Yeah, I have a question. We can... I'm going to repeat the question back, yeah. In the last two years, we've had two elderly friends who have had brain leaks from one from a fall and one from a car accident. They knew one went to the hospital or doctor right away. And they were also on blood thinners, and they both passed from it. I have a third friend who knew better and went to the hospital immediately in the fall, and she did have a brain bleed, but they were able to reverse everything and get it stopped, and she's fine from that. But my point is, I guess, if you're on a brain, if you're on a blood, blood thinner, shouldn't you go so the question is, she had three friends, two who had accidents and falls and then passed as a result that were on blood thinners and one that went to the hospital who was on blood thinners and didn't pass. So if you're on blood thinners, what's the... Yeah, there's two, okay. two kinds of blood thinners. We have the new ones, the novel oral anticoagulants, the NOACs, and they react very quickly and get, you get rid of them pretty quickly. But um, that those can be reversed. But and Coumadin is much more difficult to reverse, maybe a more common medicine to be on. Having said that, if an individual is on a blood thinner, many of us are for atrial fibrillation, for various conditions, um, then if you do fall, then it is worth, if 
if you have a significant problem, you know, like bumping your head or hardly even notice it, you don't have a headache, probably that's not going to cause a trouble, but at least have somebody in your family remember that that happened. And then if you, car wrecks, yeah, emergency room. Uh, significant fall down, hit your head, emergency room, absolutely. And you say, you know, you or your, whoever brought you has had a fall. We can do a CT scan in like three minutes. It just takes a fraction of it. Right. And that shows blood. And if there's blood, obviously that's we reverse the cuminin. We have some reversal agents now for the newer anticoagulants, which I believe, in my opinion, are much safer than cuminin. Yeah. Perfect. Good. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Carol. I just want to wonder what, what your stand is on healthy fish in the old Yes. The healthy fish. Yeah. Well, if you're a pescatarian, that means you eat fish, but you don't eat red meat. Yeah, I think salmon is great. Uh, salmon, I, that's, I'm, I think that's probably the best. You want to kind of stay away from bottom feeding fish, catfish. Uh, uh, well, the only way to eat catfish is fried anyway, so that's yeah. the best. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, salmon is good. Uh, that, that, that's the only one that really comes to mind because that's what I prefer and what I recommend. So here's the difference. You can have a hamburger or you can have a salmon burger. Which one should you choose? Or you could do a new meat, the, the, the novel meat thing that's out there that are plant-based uh, uh, things. Yeah, hamburger patties and, uh, and sausages, things like that. Black meat yeah. burgers, yeah. things like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm going to get her and then I'll get you a stand, okay? Yeah, Betty, tell us about aphasia. Aphasia means loss of speech. And loss of speech, uh, it can be dysphasia. In other words, if I were able to say a few words but not have a conversation, or I can't speak at all, it's called aphasia. A in anything medicine means you can't do it. And that comes from a tiny part of our brain called the temporal parietal occipital area, about the size of our uh, left, uh, like a small egg, it's sitting right here on the left side of our brain. And that requires a very complex mechanism of thinking and motor function to express speech. And if we have a, a stroke, can knock out one tiny artery and you can lose your ability to express yourself. Can that be regained? Uh, yeah, it can. Again, with uh, 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 rehabilitative therapy, uh, it can be improved. Whether it would be perfect again, it's hard to say, but I've seen patients recover nicely from it. But not everybody. It depends on the magnitude of the stroke and how much brain tissue is lost. So that's your question. Yeah. Okay, stand, and then what do I see a hand back here? I'll come next. I'll go over there, and then I'll come up to you, okay? Uh, where we live, they have a lot of fish. They have tilapia, they have cod. And then salmon, but out of the three, salmon's the best. I think salmon's best, and uh, cod is the next best. Tilapia is kind of a bottom feeder, and there are people that uh, that are from the far east where a lot of that comes from. They oh, don't eat that. So we breed. There's a lot of tilapia around, but uh, the Asian individual won't eat it. <laughs> okay, Barbara. Um, I in your early slide it showed the man's brain going down quicker than the woman's brain. Thanks for reminding us of that, Barbara. <laughs> Thanks for reminding us of that. Right. But I thought statistics showed like it's one to five women getting dementia more than men. So what I was curious about. Yeah, that's, a, that's certainly a good point that women have a, a higher incidence of dementia. There's so many factors that go into that that it's really hard to say. I, I just know that the neurotransmission function is different and the brain structure is different to some degree with brain connections. But um, it, can I, can so I many ask, factors. Well, so they, women live longer. So there are more women 
What about dizzy spells that can cause falls? What, do you, what about them specifically? Well, when you get up, yeah. you suddenly you're, you feel dizzy. Is the question, what should I do about what, them? Yeah, what should you do about them? What causes them? Yeah, the dizziness, uh, generally, many of us uh, have our own blood pressure medicine. That one thing, we're lying down in a chair, or in a chair, we're lying down at night. We get up too quickly. We have hardening of the arteries. Our arteries are no longer elastic like a younger person because we've had too many cheeseburgers and hamburgers and things like that. And the, the, there's no compliance. So that artery is just like a pipe and it, it either pressures or there's no pressure. It's up and down. Our normal artery, when we get up, it automatically compensates. So our arteries constrict, it keeps the blood pressure up. But uh, it's a loss of pressure as we age, we're just more we're more sub, uh, subject to that. Best thing to do, obviously, you gotta get out of a chair, stand for a moment. Do, do not. Uh, there we go. Uh, That's Matt. Matt, would you please open it? Yeah. Yeah. Self aware. Stand for a few seconds. Make sure you're not gonna be too dizzy. Get out of bed. Sit on this edge of the bed real quick. When you have to get up in the middle of the night, sit there for a few seconds. Don't get up and just you know like we think our brains are gonna take us. To the bathroom, but it doesn't work. We fall down. Okay, about so come up at home. Take it when you're sitting down, yeah. and then take it again right when you stand up. Hand her the mic so that we can hear her. We hand her the mic. When you get dizzy when you stand up or from lying to sitting, um, and you have a blood pressure cup at home, take your blood pressure. Take it when you're sitting, and immediately take it again when you stand up. If your blood pressure drops, you need to record those readings and you need to follow up with your primary care because you may need to adjust your blood pressure medication dosage. Good job. All right. Yes, Doc. Great point. Uh, can I speak yeah, about busyness one more time? Uh, in our emergency room, we had very difficult time recognizing a, uh, a vertebral artery stroke or a dissection. And we, there are five dizzies. In other words, dizzy dysphagia or dysarthria, you can't speak very well, uh, you have an ataxia, you can't uh, walk, or your arms and legs don't work quite well, uh, uh, dysphagia, you can't swallow. If any of one of those things is positive, that's a vertebral artery stroke until proved otherwise. We were missing those. Dizziness is a big deal. So just, if you're dizzy intermittently, oh, and, and double vision with the other one, uh, if you're busy, dizzy intermittently, then uh, that's one thing. But it's not a viral illness, not an inner ear thing. If you're dizzy, double vision, you can't speak well, um, you're uh, having trouble with clumsiness, that's the stroke to prove otherwise. Go to the ER at that point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, Dr. Smith, uh, what about you're not dizzy, but equilibrium? You turn too quick, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, the, the rapid head motion, uh, body motion. Yeah, you, your our inner ear, the little 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 pieces of gravel, otoliths in our ear that that keep our balance and position. Even that doesn't work as well. But the otolith is fine, the little pebble is fine, but the, the nerve ending is not quite as sensitive, so it does cause a little dizziness. Also, uh, that can be a vascular thing. You could your vertebral artery could be a little bit narrow, and when you twist like that, it it goes through a part of our spinal. Uh, uh, 
structure in our neck, uh, and you can maybe have a little bit of uh, transient temporary interruption. It just takes a second or two. So it could be any number of those things. If it's just a minor thing that you're not having tremendous trouble with that, it's probably not much you can do about it, except be on your statin, and some people need a little aspirin with that. 81 milligrams, we haven't talked about that. Still a little bit controversial, but and I live in the stroke world, so I recommend it. Connie, we have them back there. Alan Jacobs uh, lived with the Maasai in Kenya, and he did a study. They're nomadic, they herd cattle, highly protein diet, blood, meat, uh, milk, and no evidence of elevated cholesterol, no evidence of coronary issues, and his conclusion was that the exercise was a more important factor than necessarily the intake. And I say this not to contradict, perhaps just to define. What about your opinion on that? Yes. Well, that's, you know, there's always an area of, of, of population like that that's going to be an outlier. So I would say that, obviously, you can't argue with what's happened. These people uh, probably have a very low-stress environment. They walk everywhere. Uh, they, they don't have some of the other environmental things that ex we experience, but basically they probably are genetically predisposed to being able to tolerate that kind of diet. Because if most of us ate that way, many, there used to be many, many uh, uh, the Atkins diet where you eat all this meat and you lose weight, that's still very detrimental. So how long, I don't know how long the Messiahs live. Did, did, he, did he say that? Okay, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, uh, it, it wouldn't stack up to our environment and our culture here. Uh, that's about all I can say. Yes. Hey, Joy? Yes, I am into safety factors. And I think each one of us need to look where we live and how we live for safety factors and make the readjustment. I'm very cautious of curves. I will walk a half a block not to go down the curve. Also, I am more aware of my shoes and foot care because that helps me walk better and do all of those good things. But safety of our homes is so important. Of little things that we have, just a bump going from the garage to the house can make a difference. I have yellow tape. You're so great, Joy. I appreciate that. I'm going to have Jackie. Jackie, speak to the uh, kind of environmental factors that you guys look at and that Joy mentioned. We do not allow rugs in our facility. Um, if you have a rug at home, you, e you either need to remove the rugs because, like he said, your feet no longer know the space anymore and you sometimes shuffle your feet a little bit. Those are trip hazards. Um, if you can take a shower and you get dizzy, like sometimes get dizzy, you need to have a shower chair in there so that way if you get dizzy, you can sit down. Um, I would always take my cell phone if I were you and lay it on the bathroom counter when you're in the shower. Um, so that way if you fall, you're not laying there for three days, you have a way to get a phone and call somebody. Um, what about, um, for us, we have a lot of houses in Oklahoma City that have a step-down living room. So you have a sunken living room. Uh, I've got Mr. and Mrs. Imler who used to come, Dr. Imler and his wife, they moved out of state. And when I went to see their house, they had a big piece of blue tape across their uh, step because it was wood to wood. And your depth perception, I mean, it didn't matter your age, your depth perception can't see the difference between that transition. So they put tape there to remind themselves that that step was there, so. I myself have a sunken living room in a house that I just bought, and my parents are 65, but my dad can't see very well. He came over and he just thought it was a level, and he stepped and almost fell. 
that we have now added decorative tile to the edge of that so that way it still you know looks good but you can tell the difference that's a great point about the rug, especially these loose rugs on the floor. I mean, I guess that's what you're talking about. Yeah, that's uh, very dangerous. Is there a way to assess this cognitive margin? Is there a way to what? To assess this cognitive margin. Assess. Yeah, you know, the, the simplest way, obviously, is to just you're evaluating your daily activities of daily living, asking your spouse, your significant other, whoever would be with you a long time. For the physician, if somebody comes in and they say, you know, my memory is just not as good as I like for it to be, can you can you tell me what what's the measurement? There's called a mini mental status exam. It's a 30-point exam, and you all probably use that in your facility as well. And it, you know, it says where are you, what state is this, what city, what county, uh, what day is it, what year is it? Uh, can you subtract seven from 100? Can you remember three things like penny, nickel, a penny, a penny? Table and apple, I can't. Can you remember them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I have a list. You have a list. <laughs> I have to allow memory. Can you subtract 7 from 100? Can you draw complex circles, draw a face and a time, all that? And you can measure them. And if individuals, most hit, we'll hit 28, 30 right in there. Somebody comes in, does a 12, or 15, or a 10, they have a problem. So I might ask, and you guys may know this, but I have a relative who recently we just uh, did some assessment through Neuro Resources. So a licensed psychologist, and they gave a battery of tests. It was like nine in the morning to three in the afternoon, very extensive. You want to speak to that? Yeah. That's a formal neuropsychological uh, examination. It take time, but it is extremely accurate. It will absolutely tell you more than you want to know, but. That for accuracy and individuals that are having progressive loss, because called dementia, progressive loss of being able to function with sensation, the neuropsychological exam is extremely accurate. So what we do in the office is the many mental status, but multiply that by 100, and then you have a, a neuropsych exam. So all the women in the room who want to have their husbands tested, I do have the name of the company. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing you want to do, let me just briefly mention, uh, you want to make sure there's no thyroid problem. You want to make sure there's no depression. You want to make sure blood pressure is not out of control. You want to make sure that LDL is not, you know, that's the bad uh, cholesterol, is not out of control. You want to do medical things to make sure that there's not a treatable cause. So, oh, let me ask. So what's the most common, I'm going to ask both of y'all, what's the most common thing you see that looks like dementia that isn't dementia in your care settings? Ours is a urinary tract infection. So, yeah, so that, I mean, older people, uh, in younger people, you've got the urinary burning when you go to the bathroom. It's not, it's not always symptomatic. It, it can be very well hidden, and you could be septic before you actually get it diagnosed. So you need to pay, uh, uh, so you may need to, uh, you know, just pay attention. If someone suddenly, uh, your spouse or your, uh, someone you know, one of your friends, is not behaving correctly, maybe they're having sudden outbursts, always have all of that investigated, but a lot of times um, it is a UTI, urinary tract infection. And for us, sometimes it's actually dehydration. Um, when you're not drinking enough, you are not functioning well. Um, and when you have dementia, you don't remember that you're thirsty. So unless you have someone there to remind you or offer you fluids every two hours and make sure you're getting the right amount, then dehydration is an issue. Yeah. 
those are great points, and I might segue into, especially the urinary tract infection. We see patients coming to our emergency room at Mercy, and we think they've had a stroke, and it's called code stroke. When somebody comes in, code stroke, and I can't tell you how many times it's a urinary tract infection. It's called a metabolic encephalopathy, it's big doctor talk, for the bladder infection produces a systemic effect. It may not be uh, bacteria in the bloodstream, can be, that's really serious, but it can be just the toxic effects of this thing because our brain, as it's aged and more mature, be more fragile, and that's a very common thing. It's a great point. Is there a way to avoid urinary tract infections? It seems to be epidemic. Well, I think it's, it's more common in women. Most women, many women have had childbirth and their, their bladder is not suspended like a younger person, and it tends to have, retain urine. And when that happens, uh, it's in sight for bacteria to grow. And that's the most common thing. In men, if the prostate enlarges with age, the same thing can happen there. It's more common in women. So pay attention. Yeah. Catch it early, right? And, yeah, and symptoms and signs would be frequency, some difficulty to control bladder function, uh, some discomfort, um, and maybe even a low-grade fever. But it's the frequency, difficult to control, that's probably the most common things that we would see, at least on the neurosurgical side. Okay. Well, that creates two questions. My first one is about the cholesterol that has built up in the arteries. And a person goes on the no meat diet, can that build up be reversed? Will it be removed as you continue on that diet? Yes, the, the answer to that is yes. You saw those slides of, from Dr. Esselstyn and the, the coronary arteries. Yeah, those people that have been on a strict, I mean, this, this diet is, I can't do it, it's that strict, it, it, but it really makes a big difference. And you can reverse it. There's a little sidebar. Yeah. Let's cut me off if it's going to What there's a, uh, there's a orthopedic surgeon here in town, and he talks about this. And he had terrible angina, vascular disease, and this was back probably 15, maybe 20 years ago. He was advised to have a bypass. He said, oh, I don't think so, because in those days, it wasn't quite as successful as it is now. So he got with Dr. Esselstyn and went on that diet. He totally reversed his disease. His angina went away. He's now probably late 60s, 70s, could be older. And he's still functioning, still has energy, still does surgery. Without the bypass? Without the bypass. Totally reversed it. You saw that slide of the coronary artery. That's not his, but that's similar to what he experienced. So it's a big deal. But you still got, don't, don't give up the statin. Uh, more sidebar. Nope. Uh, the, the, in, in, our, in our overseas uh, troops that have lost their lives, they, they've been examined. Even 18, 20, 25-year-olds have had very obvious atherosclerotic changes in their arteries already. Because our entire society, you go by the, the, the restaurant McDonald's, uh, the rest, Mexican restaurants, high fat, high calorie, high salt, high everything. And that really deposits those uh, articles. Add tobacco products to oh, that. We haven't talked about it. Do not, any, any kind of tobacco. You know, what the 20s and 30s, 40s and 50s, every movie you see, everybody's smoking. Everybody's drinking. They're smoking. I mean, they don't quit. They, they just, it's continuous. And uh, that's, that, is, that and high blood pressure are totally destructive of blood vessels and the brain. Get it? Okay, so right back here, uh, Connie, there's another question here, and then we'll go back there. He 
You guys need to hold your hands up high so she can see you with the mic whenever you're ready for a question. Yeah, okay. Uh, my question is about statins um, and the side effects of taking a statin, and how would you balance out when you should go on a statin versus the side effects to that? Yeah, that's a great question in the sense that many say, well, I can't take it because my muscles hurt and various things that, that, that makes them uncomfortable. There are many, many varieties and, and compounds of statin drugs. Um, so you, number one, you change the, the brand you're taking, the, the type of statin. Number two, you reduce the dose. You take it every day, every other day, three times a week. You vary the dose, vary the, the strength of the statin, and vary the compound of the statin. There's several compounds, so I would do all, at least those three things to try to be able to take the medicine. Some might have a, 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 a gene that doesn't allow you to not to tolerate statin, but I think trying those three methods would certainly be worth trying. So can I just point something out, and you can tell me as a physician, and as a surgeon you may not handle this as often as a general practitioner or family doctor, but here's what I see happening. People go to the doctor, they find out they have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, or diabetes, or some process, and they go, here's your prescriptions, you need to lose some weight, you need to exercise, you need to eat better. And then they go home and they get their prescriptions filled and they go plop themselves down in the recliner and they have their bourbon at night, their hamburger at lunch every day, and their bacon and eggs in the morning. Are we able to, is the medication enough to offset all of those lifestyle issues? It is not. It's a, it's a, in my opinion, diet is the foundation. It's the toughest to change. We don't want to do that. Nobody wants to hear it. But you, you got to be disciplined to do it. And as we age, if we're 90, 95, you know, we're functioning pretty well. You never want to quit a winner. So I just keep it up. But most of us that aren't 90 uh, would benefit from changing our diet, limiting our salt, no tobacco, limited alcohol, exercise, walking is fine because most of us can't do much. You see the millennials out there pushing twins in a baby yeah. carriage and the husband's doing push-ups on the, on the curb and, the, and they're both running. Yeah, we can't do that. Number one, we fall down. What did you say? We were talking, you said there were some people that really, they can't exercise for whatever reason. What do they do if they can't really do, they can't walk, they can't run, they can't do push-ups? What do they, what should they do to take care of that? Well, it depends on the condition. You can always look at yoga, which is very, very good for balance and muscle strength and, and coordination. You can swim, it's more difficult, more trouble, but swimming is great. Uh, those are things where you're not, if your joints hurt so bad, your hip and back hurt so bad, you can't do things, then you modify the activities. And I, uh, yeah, no, yeah. I want to I go to, yeah. to Trish and talk about that. Both of you can address this, but what do you see happen with people who have been at home, sitting in the recliner, and then they come and they come spend some time with you guys throughout the week? What do they do and what do you notice the changes? I love this, what you told me about this. Right, so we use kind of a holistic approach in that we supply a good USDA-based nutrition program. We also exercise every day. We encourage every single one of them to get up and exercise with us. Whether they, you know, if they can't walk, then they can do chair exercises. Um, even at home, you can use like um, a can of green beans, weighs 14 ounces, that's almost a pound. So just sitting in your chair, you can do a little bit. Uh, so we have found that using this um, the USDA food program and um, exercising, the socialization. Again, we see such a change in them within just the first two weeks. It's just amazing what they can do. And that's our goal, is to keep them in the home of their choice for as long as possible. 
the stronger they are, the longer they stay strong, the, the more apt they are to be able to stay in that home as long as possible and not to be, you know, once the caregiver starts to help, have to help lift them out of bed or help get them out of the recline or whatever, then, you know, they both start the, the, a downturn. So we try to keep them strong as long as possible. Jackie, what about you guys? How important is programming for people? Um, for us, it's very important. Um, one of the big things we do is we do a lot of therapy. And after therapy, the big thing is to not quit after they maintain the highest level of function they can. So we have a restorative program that we help them with assistive range of motion or you know full range of motion where if they can't do it, we move their joints for them. We also have a program that we do chair Tai Chi. So that way it improves their balance and helps reduce our falls. But we do group exercise at least daily of some kind. So strength training is important. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, I'm gonna let you close with your slide and then I have a couple of housekeeping items after we finish this up. Oh, hang on, Dr. Smith. I'm sorry. I promised her one question. Go ahead. Yeah. Is there a difference between uh, TIAs and migraines that are able to be noticed or not? Doctor, my husband had within two or three years uh, three emergencies uh, and uh, go to the emergency room. His doctor told him to go to the emergency room. They had all symptoms of TIAs, but all all three times they said they were migraines. Uh, he eventually, uh, during that time, was developing uh, Alzheimer's or the aphasia, really. And uh, I just wondered if it is a real difficult situation for a doctor to, to figure out if it's a TIA or a migraine. Good question. Yeah, it depends on the presentation. If the person has severe headache, vomiting, um, and stroke-like symptoms, that's called a stroke memory. And migraines will do that. It produces very severe basal spasm. And you think it's a stroke, but it's a migraine. A TIA is a transient ischemic attack. I consider all those strokes. There are many strokes. There, it's, it can be a shower of cholesterol right up from the carotid artery into the brain. It can be a tiny clot. And our, our brain can deal with some of that. And it goes away. You don't have any consequences. But migraines, will, we see that a lot. Stroke mimic. And it will shoot it. Right. Just, uh, just a definition. Definition, an ancient vegetarian. That's a tribal name for the village person who can't hunt fish or light fires. <laughs> and a modern vegetarian, about 80 to 90 percent, a tribal name for a person with less stroke, less heart disease, hypertension, and diabetes. How many of you want to be a modern vegetarian? Yay. <laughs> we don't get much participation here in that. Uh, yeah. But there are a few. That's okay. We can only touch the lives of a few in here. Yeah. The rest of you guys yeah. want to kick off early. That's your problem. It's a process. You're not going to do this overnight, but just get it in your mind, the mentation, think about it, and do some of the things that you can to keep your cognitive reserve and your physical reserve, if, if we just talked about it, as good as it can be. Did we have a great panel, you guys?
So if you have questions about the mercy programs, if you have questions um, that are related to some of the support groups they offer, things like that, he's got materials back here at this table. But please don't come up here for free advice. I think that would just be uh, an inappropriate thing to do. If you want free advice, just ask Stan Alexander. He'll be happy. Okay. Okay, so um, Chris is reminding me that everyone needs to fill out their evaluation and turn it into Jim in the back, who's going to go on a plant-based diet today. Right, Jim? Last but not least, you guys, here's, here's what I would ask you to do today. Are you listening? If you do nothing at all after today, I would ask that you create one action item, just one, and all humor aside, one improvement in your life that you can make or in the life of somebody you're caring for. If it's diet, great. If it's a little exercise and a little chair tai chi, great. If it's going to see if the Daily Living Center is a place that you can get some respite, great. I, it doesn't matter to me what it is, but when people leave here and don't take action, what happens? Nothing. Or something bad may happen, right? But just one, can everybody make a commitment today to make one change? Just one. Yeah? Say yes? Yes. yes. All right, good. Have a beautiful week, and we will see you guys next month. At our, hang on, how do we go to that last slide, Chris, on my thing? I'm going to put up the last slide, here it is, for the seminars for next month. And you guys will come back for the truth about downsizing or decluttering your home. Chris, how do I make this go? He'll show you. <laughs> that is Oh my Truth about decluttering your home. And if you're wondering about this one on August 13th, I don't know if you guys know this, but Connie uh, Williams and Shannon Steiger joined our team a few months ago. and we They had some seminars on the books already, so we combined those seminars. So the, there's a seminar on the 13th, and then there's the ones in September. They're similar, but with different speakers. So just pick your favorite date or come to all of them. We don't care either way. And so, um, but please just make your reservation regardless so we can make sure we have adequate seating. Because on that one, guess what? We'll probably have 200 plus people here because people want to get rid of their stuff. Okay? Have a great day, guys. Bless you.